0: Welcome back to another episode of the We Live to Vote podcast. I'm here today with Davis Nguyen, and we're going to be talking about exit interviews and why you should be doing them from the point of view of the company owners. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me, Davis. I appreciate it. Uh, Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about what it is you do, and then we'll go from there.
1: So I run a company
0: that helps aspiring
1: consultants work at firms like McKinsey, Bain, and BCG in management consulting. So what we do is we help students and recent grads land these dream jobs where they're getting to make an impact and working with companies, Fortune 500 companies, building out their careers, as well as in the meantime, also building out skill sets as well. And this whole company started back in 2017 when it was a side business for me. I was working in education and decided to build a company up on the weekends when I was trying to pay off a medical debt. And it eventually became my full time. Today, I have a full team and we've helped over at this point close to 700 people get their dream jobs in management consulting.
0: And why is it that you chose to do this business specifically? What makes you passionate about it? But really, this, the story takes back a few years. So I know you've lived in Vietnam. So my family came from Vietnam
1: before I was born. And so they were political refugees from the Vietnam War. So my family, they actually grew up in South Vietnam. They were farmers. And when they escaped, they made it to the United States. And my family, no one had finished even high school at that point. So my mom, for example, was was hit by a disease, so she didn't even get a chance to finish third grade. And so when they moved to the United States, when you're a political refugee, you don't exactly get to pick where you live. So it's not like we want to live in Orange County in California. It's more like, well, which place is going to accept refugees? And we were accepted in Southside Atlanta. So Southside Atlanta at the time was known for a few things. Unfortunately, it was known for high crime rates, low graduation rates, high pregnant teenage pregnancy rates, and just low college payment rates. So but that was a few places that I would take my family. And so when my family settled down in Southside Atlanta, we didn't even know where what was happening. And I was born shortly afterwards. And, and growing up, we grew up one of the poorest communities in the United States. And our my school system at the time was called the worst school system in the US. So like think about it, like there's hundreds of thousands of school systems, and yet you're called you're ranked the worst one. Like, what would you have to do to, to get to that point? And so I mentioned this because that means like careers like entrepreneurship, management consulting, and others weren't exactly what I grew up with. In fact, my my parents I, I joke. a lot of asians say that their parents are tiger parents my parents were more like panda parents which was hey as long as you don't get killed just figure it out on your own. and so that's basically what i had to do but i grew up and i i wanted a little bit more of myself and so my goal was i wanted to get to the best school possible and so when i was in third grade i was probably eight at the time i asked i asked my homeroom teachers like well what's the best education path I can go. And she said, well, you probably go to college. I was like, well, what's the best college? And she said, well, Harvard or Yale will probably be the best. College. I was like, great, I want to go there. And this is a community where we had a saying where people go to jail, not to Yale. And so imagine growing up and having that thing about there, I was like, well, wow, more people go to jail than you go to Yale. And I was like, well, I want to go to Yale. And so I would eventually work myself, find a couple, we can talk about this more, but basically found some shortcuts, figured out a way to get help and eventually would get full scholarships into Yale and Harvard and choosing Yale. And when I was at Yale, it was the first time in my life where I was just surrounded by abundance, where I went from this community where my family was basically living off a dollar a day in like Atlanta. And all of a sudden, I'm in this institution that's known for producing Supreme Court justices, producing presidents of the United States, life changers, CEOs, and so forth. And I'm like, wow, what do I do with all this? And I'm like, well, every summer, I want to work with someone who inspires me. And so i would just reach out to so many different mentors so many different people i wanted to work with so these were like these people who i looked up to like the susan canes of the world these would be like tony robbins tim Ferriss, and so forth and i would just code email them and just figure out how i can work with them and i ended up working with a number of these amazing people who i before i just read about in books and at the end of every summer they would just say hey davis seems like you want to be an entrepreneur one day but you should probably sharpen your business skills first we recommend you go into management consulting first how do you even know what management consulting was And for anyone listening to this you don't know what it is there's basically it is like a business doctor so whenever a business has a problem it's trying to solve for example let's say that a luxury brand is thinking about launching a series of stores in a new country instead of figuring out well which one of these 190 countries are we going to open in they'll hire a management consulting firm like Boston Consulting Group, Accenture, Deloitte to come in, do the analysis and make a recommendation. And these firms get paid millions of dollars for this recommendation because it can make billions of dollars for the brand. And that was my first exposure to management consulting was through my internships. like, well, if my mentors believe that I should go into management consulting, I should probably take it seriously. The problem was that most people, when they go into management consulting, plan years in advance that they're going to go into consulting. It's not like you just decide one day you to be a consultant. But for me, I decided one day I just wanted to go. And entering my final year of university, I basically had two weeks before they started the recruiting process. So I had two weeks to figure out how to write a resume, which I didn't need up to that point, a cover letter, which I'm like, well, it's a cover letter. And then we had to do something called a case interview, which is a technical interview for business problems. I'm like, what is that? And so I had two weeks to figure out what other people have been doing for two years. And similar to getting to Yale and Harvard, I tried to figure out a way to essentially Shortcut the process, and I eventually would land multiple offers, and I decided to work at Bain and Company, which was for the culture, and so I became a management consulting myself. And after consulting, I left to join a education company that was going through a startup phase. And during that time, I basically had a lot of my my pay in the success and profitability of the company, which at the time we were raising money, trying to get money. So I was kind of like, if anything, it was a negative balance, of I should owe money if anything for my deal. But at the same time, my mom, who had raised me, she never finished third grade, and calls me and she says, hey, Davis, I need a medical bill. i family member, we need $22,000. And I didn't have $22,000 at the time. And I couldn't get a loan, I couldn't get a second job, and I couldn't get a pay raise at the company I was working at. So I needed to form a, a weekend business. And so this is where the start of my consulting offer actually came, was on the weekend, I decided, well, I'm just gonna help people become management consultants. I'm just gonna work on them on their resume, their cover letter. And help them prepare for their interviews and i did that and that's pretty much how i covered the debt and i just loved what i was doing and word of mouth still kicked in and eventually i was like wow i have two jobs now i, I could continue what i'm doing or i can go full-time with my consulting offer and that's how i ended up choosing my consulting offer and going full-time with it so the short answer to your that i ended up being a consultant myself solid life-changing growth and career path you could provide and then because of necessity needing to cover a $22,000 debt decided to coach other aspiring consultants to get the job. And eventually that's how I ended up enjoying the process, building a team and a company around it.
0: That's a fantastic story. And I, I'm not sure whether to say it's unique, maybe to Asian culture, at least for me, like as a white American, if someone in my family had that kind of a debt, they wouldn't probably come to me and ask me for help. I probably wouldn't never even hear about them having this issue. So. Like, for example, if you were white, there's a good chance that my consulting offer would have never been created because you may not have even been put in the position that you needed that money. So I think that's a really interesting thing. Cause I I saw in, in Asian culture, oftentimes family members, like my girlfriends would be, or my ex-wife would be asked for money to cover things for other family members where like, I never experienced that personally or saw people experience that in America. Oh,
1: that's that's an interesting observation. Well, obviously I only have one life to live and one family. So I only have for one lens, I guess for me growing up, families took care of each other. So when it came time for me to be able to help my family out, it just became natural.
0: No, of course. I mean, I think it was really cool what you did. And I, I think having lived in Asia and in Europe and in the I think, uh, America has a lot of things it can learn from other cultures in terms of like actual community and helping each other, but. Let's get to the main topic here. I know that you help people to get these jobs, but you also have experience with the exit interview. So I imagine you're helping them to prepare for when they're leaving companies too, is that it? Not quite our our main offering, but we do do exit interviews in our
1: company when someone leaves because, and in consulting, they do mandatory exit interviews when you leave as well. And I think it's one of the best practices that you can have for any entrepreneur, any company. It doesn't matter if you're literally a company up to one plus one, every, you plus one person, or you're like 200,000 people. Just having an exit interview, I think it's just best practice for being able to improve the culture and just being, being able to improve the quality of the people who are at the company.
0: Okay. So what is an exit interview? So
1: for anyone who has been lucky enough not to have an exit interview means that you've loved your jobs or the company didn't care enough to have one. Oh, well, so as it sounds, the dictionary maze, right. It's an interview that happens on the exit. So what does an exit mean? It means that when you're leaving the company. So it means that you resigning from the company, you're leaving. And the company, as you sit down, it could be with your manager, it could be with someone from HR, or CEO, but someone sits down and they interview you. Similar to how when you came in, they gave you a job interview on the way out, they interview to really find out what's the reason that you're leaving. And the magic of this is the first time I ever had a an exit interview with, or experience with it. Was through a friend of mine. And so the friend of mine, he was working at the time at McDonald's and he was making at the time minimum wage for him was like $5.15. And so he basically left to join Burger King, where he's going to make $5.89. And on his interview from McDonald's, like, why are you leaving? I was like, well, I'm getting paid more for Burger King. It's as short as that. So it basically explains why people are leaving. So he, I would say, was a pretty awesome. I cook and of course if they could keep them, they could keep them and I, I adopted that that same thing where when we were at, when I was at Bain, I was doing management consulting, when people would leave, they would want to do an exit interview for three reasons. One is that if you were a superb performer, they would want to know what made you leave because if you're someone who could have gone on to have an amazing career, could contribute to the company, create value. They want to know how can they learn from what triggered you to leave so that if you do if they do have encounter other similar employees in the future who are like you, they can prevent them from leaving. Second, is it's a good way for them, if it is a if you're leaving on good terms, to build that bridge so that if you do come back, then you have that process and they can keep you and hopefully retain you longer. Or third, if you're a bad employee who is voluntarily leaving, they can learn, great, how do I prevent similar hires like this person? So, like very three, three ways you can, can better from an exit interview or conducting it, right? Is one, you get to keep your superstars for the future. Two, you have a way of bringing back a superstar who's temporarily leaving now. And three, you get to learn how to prevent bad hires in the future. So, and regardless of what it is, it's like a 30 minute to an hour conversation where, or in my friend's case, probably lasted two minutes. Is, it's a chance for the company to be able to learn how to grow their hiring and retention process.
0: So what kinds of questions should people ask? And is there a kind of order to how you ask those questions in order to not create a bias from the person that you're asking these questions for, so you get honesty from them. So, the way that I
1: always think about the exit interview is you should start with the strategy. What is the goal that you're trying to learn? For example, if you wanna test, hmm, are people leaving because they don't feel like they're growing within the company, then your questions are gonna be more skewed towards the professional development. But if you believe that people are leaving because of a manager or a person in the company, you were skewed towards that or money towards money. And so I would take a step back and actually think about what's your objective for this exit interview. And if it's testing a lot of different things, you wanna be able to finish off the questioning for one trend to another. So for example, one of the common questions that get asked is when people are leaving, you kinda wanna know how soon do they think about leaving? Was it like last week? Or have they been thinking about this for over a year, but they haven't found the opportunity? So one of the questions I found, and people have been honest about this is when did you start considering leaving and from there when they tell you about the time you can start following up by asking well what what kept you here and what keeps them there you might say well they made them they find an opportunity which means that okay so there might be other people in the company that are currently looking for opportunities but they haven't found the exit plan that they want yet and it gives you an opportunity to be able to take everything you learn from the exit interview from this person and apply it back to the company. And but once you learn why they where why they leave, why they're leaving, you can dig a little bit deeper to say, is that the only? Like for example, if someone says, "Oh, I'm leaving because of, I feel like I am not growing within the company," and I was like, "Great. Besides growth, is there anything else?" Because sometimes people they do the exit interview, they just get great growth ended. But if you dig a little deeper, sometimes it becomes other other items. Like, for example, if it's the fact that they feel like they're not growing, but they also don't enjoy the team that they're working at, that gives you like, wow, oh, there's something else going on here besides growth. Is it the manager who's not developing this person and you're not giving this person the autonomy that they want, or is this person just building a toxic culture and it's you, whoever, especially if you're a CEO and growing a team to go in and actually be able to examine that and to be able to figure out what exactly is happening here. Cause this one piece of evidence of one person leaving could prevent tons of other people from leaving.
0: You were talking about being able to understand the objectives of the exit interview and the motivations of the person being interviewed. So it makes me feel like the person giving the exit interview should be very familiar with the person that's being interviewed. Who should be the one actually running an exit interview?
1: I found that from practice, the best person to do an exit interview, and you don't have to cap it at just one person. You can choose to do it with, for example, someone who's there familiar with like a colleague or a direct manager. But what I find is that if you find someone who is removed away from the process, who's a lot more objective, that you get answers that go a little bit more in depth. Because again, imagine that you're leaving because your manager is just a bad manager. You're not going to tell your manager that. And your manager is not going to go tell HR or the CEO, hey, Sean's leaving because Dave is said that Davis is a bad manager. It's like, it's just not going to happen. And so what I found has been helpful which is to find a neutral person to be able to conduct that interview. If you feel like there's gonna be advice. Of course, when we were smaller, there was only a couple of us and everyone worked together at our company. Then of course we had to conduct it ourselves. But now when we're a little bigger, you're able to take one step further and to be able to have an exit interview with someone who isn't the immediate manager of that person.
0: So then, how do you train people to do great exit interviews? Two
1: things I like to do is one, have all the questions listed out already. All the questions that way, you're not going in there and winging it. That's the first thing. And two, whoever the designated person to do the exit interview should do practices themselves. So if you're a founder, for example, an entrepreneur who just has one person who's doing it, you might be the mock person who does it with the person you assign. So if I hire someone tomorrow and I want him or her to do the Exit interview. Then I would just sit down with them and just do a mock session where they go through the question. But I, I truly believe that having a structured exit interview is better than winging it. So I never have an exit interview without all the questions already listed out. And of course, when you go in there, you might discover everything if you can dig a little bit deeper. But you shouldn't go in there with a blank sheet of paper with no intent, with no direction of where you're going.
0: You had originally said that it's kind of like intuition to really go in there and start asking questions and then feel them out. And then it, it's kind of like what we're doing right now, where of know what I want to say, but I'm also waiting for you to say something that I can then go deeper on. Right. So it's, so you're like, have questions prepared, but be ready to basically ignore them in case someone says something that's like full, you know, like hit off to the right side of the field and you're like, oh crap, I need to go over here. <laughs> sure.
1: So I wouldn't say ignore it completely, but to go in, leave the questions that you want. But if there is a string that needs to be pulled, feel free to pull that string and encourage the person. Sometimes at least today, Our our company is pretty small, so we've had few people leave. But when they do leave, sometimes we do run over the allocated time for the exit interview, and sometimes we will come back for a part two, and we're able to fulfill it through and just be able to refine the process. So I've I've never been afraid of having the person who's doing the exit interview to essentially pull on a string, knowing that hey, when you get back and hit all the other points too, because we want to be able to validate all the hypotheses that we had going into the call
0: so when you're doing an interview should it be recorded so for us it's really up to the
1: person but most exit interviews i found have not been recorded just because it makes the other person feel a lot more comfortable not having recorded but again it's not our history our our team has preferred not to but we take notes of it but we haven't like video recorded the calls the hypothesis there is that people are just going to be a lot more honest when they don't see a recording blinking button next to them
0: earlier you were talking about Uh, like trying to uncover how soon after someone was hired, they had started thinking about leaving and how long they waited until they actually left. There's platforms like Statista that do these kinds of research. Um, Do you know of any statistics about this? Like what the average length of time between getting hired and wanting to quit and then actually doing it is? Or uh, statistics around what keeps people in a company? These kinds of things? So these statistics exist and the thing that we think about is look at it less as an average
1: and look at it more from a position. So for example, what we notice that if you're in sales, for example, you're more likely to leave if there's another opportunity that you can generate a lot more commissions versus other roles. So what I would do is for anyone who's trying to look for statistics is to think about what role you're looking for and then go do the research for that particular role. And so for example, if you're thinking about, well, I have a content team, how long do writers typically stay? There are statistics on that as well. And so instead of looking at averages, which I found has not been helpful, but after your particular roles. So if it's operations it's about operations, if it's finance, it's finance, if it's HR, it's HR, if it's the product, it's a product and so forth.
0: Yeah. That would make sense that the uh, statistics would be broken up by that. I was just thinking about content and like, I feel like content writers would probably not leave as long as there's a stable salary. I imagine as long as they're writing content that they enjoy writing. I don't know, maybe you know more about that? Yeah, so for content, we, we find out there, there's been three
1: uh, three types of transitions with our content chain, so we go do through writers as well. It's One is some writers are super content as long as they have a consistent stream of content that's coming out. Obviously, they can expect to pay, so they'll stay super content. Second is that some writers do want to advance in their career. And so what they'll do is they will want an editor position, but if you only have one editor, you can't have multiple. And so they'll seek a number So we, for example, lost one of our incredible writers because she was given a editor position at a number a, a content company and I was like, wow, that sounds like a great opportunity this is where you want to be. So I was like, we're not gonna keep you here holding up you from your career path. And the third is that some writers, and this happens a lot with some of the big media companies, is that they get assigned constantly a beat or a, a content vertical. And there's only so much they want to write there before they want to move on. So for example, if you've always been writing about celebrity news and all of a sudden you're like, all right, I'm tired of celebrity news, I'm going to write about tech and off the of gears Well, you they'll be able to ship and if the company doesn't offer anything besides for celebrity news, there's no reason to stay. So even if we're in content writing, you fall into those three buckets. So again, it's people who are super content, as long as you have consistent work, second, people who want to advance to other careers, usually an editor or three people who want to switch to a different topic matter.
0: All right. Now let's talk about the flip side. You said that there's some reasons that keep people there. We don't have to use the content, uh, type employee as an example, uh, how about a, 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 a developer, something like that. Right. I'm running a, a tech company. I have developers. What are some reasons that you've heard of that keeps a developer around? Sure. So they,
1: obviously there are table stakes. Like, are you paying a, a fair rate that they're happy with, but beyond yeah. a certain point, money is not the only motivator. I've seen so many developers, especially living in San Francisco. of of people who are leaving for other companies so what i found is at least from developers in particular or people in general is the top the quality of work so when when i think about the types of people who occupy roles and there's three types of people i find happens to define the work and this develops on developers whatever as well there are people who would love to be able to do one thing and just stick to that one thing so individual contributors they just want to do one thing but when the scope of the work changes then they might want to change the work as well and we found team members in our team who I thought, Oh, you're fantastic in this role. Do you want to take a management role? They do it, they test it and they're like, this is so stressful to go back to what was doing. That's totally fine. That's one. Second is sometimes people just want an advancement. So if you're able to give them an advancement, so for example, as a developer, instead of just building your own, call it your own staff, you're able to build the architecture. That's like the next step up. And that's like a thing that people want to be able to advance in their career. So some people want to stick with it. Other people want to advance. And third, people want to build a wide skill set. So perhaps they, don't want to be a developer forever. They want to be able to be a CEO or a CTO of the company. They want a wide exposure to it, not necessarily being a manager, but a wider set. And so being able to give them a variety of projects, assuming that it makes sense for the company keeps them motivated. And so besides money, what I found has been helpful is like the teammates that people work with, the manager that they work with, as well as the type of work they do, because if you have a bad manager, bad teammates, and you don't enjoy the work, then you're pretty much miserable.
0: Now, you also mentioned that oftentimes there's a secondary reason. Do you have any kind of clarity on what that secondary reason is? And if they are normally willing to share what it is without you asking for it. Yeah. So the secondary
1: reason will vary from person to person It does take a little digging into during the exit interviews to be able to figure out and to be able to piece it together. But one thing, what I found helpful is that when this, when the ex-employee leaves for the next opportunity and figuring out where they land and contrasting the difference between your role and what they're currently doing now, you can kind of the bigger pieces. For example, if they're doing the same thing, but a company is paying more, then it's kind of a little obvious. But if you realize they're taking a pay cut, then you're like, well, it's definitely not money. It's something else there that they're doing, that they're not getting from you. And it it does take a little bit of digging, but I found that if you build a culture, so again, it all starts with the culture here is that one of two outcomes will happen, which is one, if your culture is very strong, then a the person would want to grow the culture because they feel like they were part of the team before they left and they were going to give you the honest truth. But if you have a bad culture, then you have to take the information, whatever information you can get, assuming that there's some truth to it, reinforce the culture. And so that later on, when you have these exit interviews in the future, you're actually get the honest answer versus a muddled truth.
0: What are some things you can do or what are some things you, you have heard of, or what are some things you have done that has improved the culture that you realize later actually kept people around where maybe before they would have left, if you hadn't implemented those things or heard of those things being implemented.
1: Sometimes we found that we promoted people too early. They thought they would want the role and then they're miserable with the role, but they don't want to take a step back in their role because it seems like a demotion. And so one of the things that we do at our company now that we learn from that is we do what are called trial periods. So before someone actually assumes the role takes it on full time, we let them assume the role is like, well, look, we're not going to make a formal announcement. Why don't you try it for a few months? We'll check in and it does two things. One, it makes sure that you, as the person promoting them, feel like they have the qualities, all the boxes checked in, but also
0: second for them, they can say, well, I'm actually driving this row. I enjoy this row. I want to keep this. We had an issue at one point where we were trying to let our lead developer slash architect really be C- CTO because mo- most of the time he had just been doing those other things, even though he had the role, the, the title. And that meant one of the developers had to step up into the lead role. And of course they all said they wanted the role, but it was very obvious to me and to my CTO that there was only one person that should have that role. And there was a little bit of unhappiness among the team because that other person got chosen, not because he, not because. They didn't know he was the best one but because they were the cop but i want this role and then later on when that person was offered a better opportunity that we couldn't match we then had those other few people still remaining and they all still wanted the role but then when we assessed them and they talked about it they're actually like well you know the idea of having that role is great but actually like no i'm just happy being a coder it's like well why were you like so fussy about this crap for the last year and a half? If you didn't actually want the thing, the thing, you know,
1: it's the hard part right, of a business is that people are so, still so different and it's second it's like an evolving process in terms of it too. And that's you know, part, part of why I find that the exit interviews are super helpful is that it uncovers, it breaks your limiting beliefs. It establishes other frameworks for moving the culture, but also third, it just gives you a chance to be able to actually validate a lot of the thinking and as much you're open to it. And it takes a really open mind to be able to, to do this as in, uh, I have fun out by in previous relationships I also did what was called an exit date, which is the equivalent of this, but for like, for personal life. And you can imagine that's really fun too.
0: <laughs> what is that like? I'd like to know exactly what it is that makes you want to break up with me.
1: So well, what I would do is that it, previously, my leash is the ones that lasted a while. And so let's say my cutoff, let's say it's a year plus mm-hmm. and. What I would do is, let some time break because if I'm the one broken up with, then I'll, I'll need some processing time. But after the processing time, I'll sit down and just reach out and say, hey, love to have an exit date. Basically, we'll go to a restaurant or we just do it at a coffee shop, whatever, your choice where. And I just wanna ask a couple questions that are removed from the situation. And uh, I just go through and I was like, well, why did you think about breaking up with me? Why did it take you so long to pull the trigger? What would you have changed it's like almost like the same as this side, but a personal side except then but then you can't have someone else do it at least i haven't found anyone else to do a third party of it so i just have to do it but i have to hold my tongue like and this is why i learned the question earlier sean was why not just do it with the person who's most familiar well you're one on one and react for example one of my exes said oh davis here one of the things i would have change was you get really competitive at board games it's still not fun to play with you and i was like but that's the point of board again, but I think the whole bag was like, well, the point is to take feedback. And so you, you listen and you go through and
0: you approach it with humility and just take notes, similar to what I do. I just take notes and ask questions and I proceed. Yeah, I think doing the podcast helped me to talk less and listen more, which is funny because that was something my ex-wife complained about. She she felt like I wanted to she, she felt like I was appearing to listen while planning what I wanted to say next. <laughs> so basically I wasn't, I wasn't actually paying attention. I was appearing like I was paying attention, but then, and I was like, that's not true, but you're right. i It's, it's not easy sometimes to not just like absolutely Say what you want to say, and not hold your tongue long enough to let the other person get out what they want to say. It has been one of the most enriching experiences, uh, both sides, professionally and personally. I think an exit date is really interesting. I've, I've said for a long time that business and dating are very, very similar to one another.
1: It, it is. It's there. There's a lot of similarities there in terms of in terms of if. If it wouldn't work in business, it's not going to work in your personal life.
0: If it's not going to work in your personal life. It's not going to work in business. So what's something that we didn't touch upon that you think is missing from this conversation? If the topic we're talking about is just improving your
1: culture and having these interviews is the same thing you can find is ideally you don't even have exit interviews, as in you keep people, keep people who are amazing and you're able to hire amazing people. And so for me, it's like an exit interview is just a feedback loop to be able to help you out when you're. When someone's leaving but how can you have fixed it in the middle when that person is there if there's someone you wanted to stay for a long time or better yet in the hiring process how could you hire people who were hired probably like i mentioned if people are leaving that you wanted them to leave your company that's probably a flag for you to figure out where did i go wrong in the hiring process so again it goes both ways which is if it's a superstar leaving then you can figure out what could make them stay but if it's someone who you wanted to leave, well, how could you have rooted them out in the hiring process to begin with? So it goes both ends of it.
0: If you aren't doing inter- exit interviews now, how do you start to implement them into the culture so that it's something that is done automatically in the future?
1: I'll would, I would do two things. One is the, the next person who leaves or says that they're leaving, start simply. Just ask, you know, ask three simple questions to start with. If you don't want to plan, it's like, when did you start about leaving? What's motivating you to leave? and what we can get you to stay those three questions will help you get started with just a basic framework of a conversation with someone who's leaving and just that's that simple asking those three questions and being of course as sean as we mentioned just being able to listen and just hold back what you want to say
0: one of the things that i do that you didn't touch upon was i try to tell them how i feel about them the way they were working so for example like when i had the lead developer find a better job with an australian company i was like look you know i i understand you know your situation and that you want to have this better opportunity that we can't afford to match and you know even if we never work together again even if we never speak to each other again because our paths just don't cross i want you to know that you're an amazing employee and i truly value how far you went to make everyone else feel comfortable with what you're doing. So like it's, it's a very personal thing, but they can feel that it's from my heart. And I think that that's really important, especially when I've had some team members who are from India and Pakistan and, and the Philippines, where they're used to really not getting praise, some of them have even admitted to me that they didn't even know the name of the CEO. They had never even spoken to the CEO of the companies that they were working for. So the fact that they saw my face, they knew my name and I had actually like wanted to have calls with them one-on-one was already like really impressionable for them. And um, so I think going further and showing them that I know about their work and what they've done and what people think of them is also even more so that may not be enough to keep them, but at least at a human level, you know, that you're doing something that's right and leaving them in a place where they feel really good about themselves, even if they're not going to continue working with,
1: with you. Recognition, just feeling like they're appreciated as well as just getting a call of one-on-one as a CEO, of where the business is. Obviously if you have tens of thousands of people, less available. but if you have like a few dozen people, very possible for you to literally just get on a one-on-one with them. Some periodically. I do the same thing with our team. Our team is not a massive department where I can't go do one-on-ones and enjoy it, getting to know the team members because again, the exit interview should be like the last thing that you're thinking about. You should be able to retain the talent as they're at the company and figuring out, and having these pulse
0: checks and these meetings. There's 13 people for us, so I, I don't know the size of your team, but It's like what what I do at this point is every quarter I'll have a call with them one on one, where it's not HR related whatsoever. It's all just like how are you, how's your family, what's going on in your life, and like oftentimes they'll start off by going, "Well, you know, my work's good." Nah, that's what your managers are for. I don't care about that stuff, right? Anything that happens, anything related to work ethic or any sort of problems they may be having inside of the company, I don't touch any of that. That's not my responsibility. I just want them to know that I care about them as a human being and I want to spend time talking to them as a human being. Um, at larger scales, obviously it's harder to do those things, but I felt like that was a good way to build a culture that makes people want to stay. That was one of the ways that I could I saw I was useful. You know, 12 hours every quarter, not that big of a deal.
1: Agree. And then going in there, being able to recognize them as a person versus, oh, you are this person who's essential to this and thinking of them as a human being versus just the role that they play day to day. I agree. Same, I take. I take a very similar approach also. I try to do a quarterly, but I also leave my calendar open. So if a team member did want to schedule time outside of it to voice anything, they have my calendar link.
0: Another thing that we try to do is town halls once a quarter. I prefer to do more my COO was like, it's fine. We could do them once a quarter because obviously, you know, the execs have to prepare, right? There's like work to do. So he's like, uh, the less we do them, the better. But like, yeah, I agree. We should do them. And um, that's when we're just like, we lay everything on the table. This is where we are. This is where we're going. This is why we're going there. You know, does anyone have any questions? Feel free to say them out loud. But because the majority of the people we <laughs> work with are Asian, they don't generally ask questions. They're just like, Okay, if, you, if there's going to be a question, it's going to be on like a DM, right? Because they're afraid of looking bad or making us look bad. And like the whole point of the town hall is for like you guys to know what's going on and to ask us questions, right? If you have a problem, there's nothing wrong with talking about it. So, you know, it, it is hard cross-culturally speaking uh, when, you know, I and, and my CEO, for example, are both American and a lot of the people we work with are, are Asian and even though we've both lived in Asian culture for more than a decade, uh, there's still gaps that uh, even when we, we press them quite deeply, like God, it's okay. Really? We're not just saying it to be nice. Like really, it's okay to like ask questions. Still, they're like the, the cultural, the, the society they are from has ingrained in them so much more deeply than what we can attempt to do that. Like, we just can't beat that out. I'm just glad that, the people we hire don't call us sirs because i've i've worked with some people like they just immediately want to call you sir and you are like no that i'm sorry that my name is sean like not acceptable i will not accept sir so at least at least we get them past that part <laughs> some people are love an open forum
1: and they are okay with voicing it and other people i make it clear that hey if you want to talk about this privately on one-on-ones dm me slack me okay then we can as well, as long as you provide two channels to, for people to communicate either through group or privately, as long as they have a channel to voice it. I find that, that that is the route to
0: improving that communication line. How do you see companies preparing for this recession or are, is are, are they already in it? How's that, how does that affect? Companies and exit interviews and all that. Some companies
1: are stopping with the hiring, especially in the tech sector. Some companies are laying off because tech had a boom and so forth. You watch in the news every day, depending on the sector and so forth. Every industry will handle it differently. And again, for me, it's kind of like you can take the average, but for me, what's more interesting is to segment those averages out to the parts that make up the average. And every sector and every company will handle it differently in terms of where you go. For example, there will be voluntary people who want to transition, where the exit interview makes sense, and then there will be mass layoffs of teams where obviously they're gonna they didn't want to leave, but of course, asking the question, so why are you leaving? Well, you just laid me off there, so that's gonna be a little bit harder. So I would still use the exit interviews for the voluntary leaving versus the ones that are you're forcing out because that's uh, that's a different reason for why they're leaving.
0: When you're doing a mass layoff, should you still be doing an exit interview? And if you do, shouldn't it be more like a career planning type of a thing, kind of like to help them and like kind of like a psychological therapy session? Like, I feel like it should be different. The point of exit interviews, like if people leaving voluntarily
1: and you wanna learn why they're leaving, especially if you didn't want them to leave, that's where that force comes in. But for people who you're laying off, I, I like to personally and I've seen this done really well, is you basically have career coaching, career transition says, Hey, you're fantastic, come out, make some referrals for you to make sure that you land on your feet on the next opportunity.
0: Is there anything else that you'd like to add to all of this? You'll learn
1: as you go and you like the battle scars. This is probably one part is once, right? For other parts, like for example, marketing or KPIs you can look at, you can look at the cost per lead, you can look for the cost per acquisition, for operations, you look at the cost execution, customer right. the response time. But like the hr piece and one of these is like one of those hard parts of where for me it, it took time it took great people coming in great people leaving the company to be able to to learn all these processes and it's it's part of probably one of the hardest things about being an entrepreneur it's kind of like the moment where you have someone who's fantastic and they leave the company and you just learn from that experience it is one of those things where you know you're a true entrepreneur when that happens you're like huh one great you made a fantastic hire you nurtured a talent darn it they're leaving you got to figure it out but the most you can do is have process in place so that the next break in there, you're able to keep them longer because it's like, I would love for my team, every single people who are, who are amazing to stay with me for life, but I'm also realistic that that might not happen and like unlikely to happen. So therefore what's the best case and move forward for, as a team.
0: Yeah. I seem to have discovered that the average person continues to work with me for a year and a half or so, two years max, except for my CEO and CTO. have been around for mo- for a lot, much longer, but. Um, and I, when I look back on my own time as working for other people, I also generally only really stayed around for a year to a year and a half, maybe two max with a specific company before I felt like there was more I could do. And I wanted to challenge myself elsewhere. So, um, especially in tech, uh, although when I was working for other people, I wasn't in tech, but, um, yeah, I, I look at it as my responsibility is to give them as much opportunity to grow so that when they leave me, hopefully there's someone else already there, ready to go and, and you can do the same thing with them. So I, I see companies as like career factories. You're there to like give people opportunities and, and assume that they're never going to stay, but that's okay because you're doing something good for them and they did something good for you in the process. Hopefully. No, yeah, exactly. It's
1: one. it's one of the onboarding questions that we always ask people to when they onboard is what's your dream career after my consulting offer? And of course we want to help them get there, right? What are the skills that they want to be able to build? Because it's, it's as, as, as someone, as the company that hires team members, it's pretty much your responsibility to, well, they have the ability to do their job and things like that, but you also want to grow them and be the best version of them as possible. Because otherwise, if you don't invest in making sure that they're ready for the next role, whatever it is, then you're basically not getting the best version of them when they are with you. And so we are realistic with that too. It's like, when they do leave, I want them to leave with more skills than when they came in.
0: So how can people follow up with you? Yeah. You just find me on
1: LinkedIn or just email me at Davis at my All
0: right, great. Thank you, Davis. I appreciate your time and your energy. Don't forget that entrepreneurship is a marathon, not a sprint. So take care of yourself and your team every day. And don't forget to do exit interviews, because if you don't, then it'll be hard to learn how you can improve your business so that people will want to stay with you longer. Thank you, Davis.